research that resonates. Schweitzer has not been wrong on any of his years and years of reporting on the Bidens. Investigations that matter. If your last name wasn't Biden, do you think you would have been asked to be on the board of Burisma? I don't know. I don't know. Probably not. But that's, you know, I, I don't think that there's a lot of things that would have happened in my life that, uh, that if my last name wasn't Biden. The only entities, the only people that would report on this, and Peter Schweitzer, who deserves a Medal of Freedom, in my view. This is The Drill Down with Peter Schweitzer. Hi, this is Peter Schweitzer, and welcome to The Drill Down, where we relentlessly expose cronyism, corruption, and the abuse of power in Washington, D.C. I'm joining you today from a remote beach location. Uh, that means somebody has to be minding the store back home, and that, of course, is Eric Eggers, and this happens to be his birthday. Eric, how are you doing today? Well, I feel... Uh you know, just like I did on the day of my birth, abandoned by the people that love me, Peter. Thank you. It's great to be here. <laughs> <laughs> well, we know you're going to suffer through, as you always do. Uh, now, Eric, I want you to think about the uh, current debate that we're having about this debt ceiling bill uh, that has been passed by a large majority in the House and in the Senate and signed by President Biden. And I want you to imagine if you had your uncle's credit card and you could spend whatever amount you wanted without consequence, what's your first buy? Right. It's a great question. It's a flawed premise, though, because if it was my uncle's credit card, uh, it's probably stolen. So the consequences, regardless <laughs> of the nature of the purchase, would be severe and swift. Uh, but, I, but I think that it's an, it's an excellent uh, premise in terms of the conversation we're having about the United States debt and our deficit and our spending problem, because it does seem like we don't have our uncle's credit card. We have everyone's uncle's credit card. We have the U.S. taxpayer credit card, and they don't appear to be concerned about the consequences of whatever they rack up, despite the fact that we now have allegedly this new era of fiscal responsibility. I mean, isn't that what we've been told this debt ceiling compromise is? Is it not? Is it is austerity not the name of the game now? Or have we not reined it in? Oh, absolutely. Well, it's called the Fiscal Responsibility Act, uh, after all. And the problem is, of course, that this is a problem that's gone on for decades. And while I know your spending habits, I would certainly trust you with my credit card before I would the U.S. Congress. Uh, and that's the problem that we face today. The national debt is now the same size as our gross domestic product. That basically means if you have a credit card debt, that is the same rate as your income. That's pretty much what our federal government has done. Like uh, and it's going to continue you, to skyrocket. Yeah, like so we, it's the equivalent of you owing as much in credit card debt as you would be reasonably expected to make in one year. Exactly right. And that's kind of where we are today. So let's talk about uh, this deal, Eric. What's your sense? Who are the winners and losers? And what's your sense on whether this deal accomplishes anything positive for America's taxpayers? Well, I think that there are some winners, right? I mean, I think there's some winners and then there's the real winners who didn't actually suffer any consequences. It's ironic that we talk about the taxpayers footing the bill. Uh, so in some sense that they're a winner in a couple different ways. Number one, it does cap future growth on spending. So while it doesn't cap the actual spending, uh, it caps how much the spending can increase moving forward, which considering the fact that there was no previous cap, you know, we'll take a small win if we can get it. Um, I know you have in previous discussions about why we have the spending problem. You've lamented the fact that Congress doesn't actually pass a budget, but some analysis in this bill suggests that this actually does, because of the caps and other things, put a budget out there for the next two years. Do you consider that a win at all? And if so, would the American taxpayers 
be happy about that? Yeah, you know, it's funny, Eric. The bar for me is so low. Uh, I was actually surprised that there were a few positive things in this bill. Um, And you're quite right. I mean, when it comes to actually passing a budget on time, you know, a budget where the committees, the budget committee actually looks at how everything is going to cost. The last time Congress did that in any remote way that was consistent with the way that they were supposed to was back in 1996. Uh, so in the sense, if this actually pushes us to some kind of a budgetary process uh, on time, uh, I think that's a great development. But the problem is every time that something good comes along like this, it gets pocketed, meaning they take it, they, they, they talk about how important it is, and then they change the rules uh, down the road. I mean, let's remember that this bill suspends the debt limit uh, until January of 2025. And the debt limit has been the only time in recent years that we've even had a discussion about how much Congress is spending because uh, they usually just pass a continuing resolution. And of course, this uh, bill, uh, the so-called Fiscal Responsibility Act, actually authorizes the expanding of our national debt by some three to four trillion dollars between now and January of 2025. So I'm not holding my breath that this is going to lead to some turning point towards responsibility, unfortunately. Well, you could be, you know, even though you're at the beach, you can be Mr. Clouds and Rain. I'm going to be Mr. Sunshine because, let's be honest, my tan is better. But I think that uh, I think that there are some positives. But I, I get what you're saying about, um, you know, they can always sort of play fast and loose. I, I do think that it's a there was some hesitancy about well, what what will this House Republican reign look like, especially with all the votes it took to confirm uh, Kevin McCarthy as Speaker? Are these guys going to actually govern? Are they going to do stuff that puts some wins on the board for conservatives and for the taxpayer and for fiscal responsibility? Or are they, as some crit- critics have suggested, are they just interested in getting on TV? So I, I do think the fact that they've been able to, to secure some of these wins, I mean, they're if you're a conservative and you're concerned about the growth of spending and the growth of the government, there are some things to like here. You got COVID relief funds that are being rescinded to the tune of $28 billion. Uh, talk about the taxpayers being winners in more way than one. We've got cuts to IRS funding. It's going to repurpose $10 billion from 2024 budget and another $10 billion from 2025. So, I, you know, we've that was one of the big talking points about how much money was going to the IRS and for all these new agents. We saw videos of training when they had guns and things of this nature. So suggest, so maybe the IRS will be scaled back some and uh, student loan repayments are going to resume again. And so so I think you know things that have been talking points for conservatives that, that don't like where we've been going under the Joe Biden economy, um, some of those are going away. Now, some things aren't going away, like runaway defense spending, and we'll, and we'll get to that in a little bit. But I, I do think that there are some things that Republicans can reasonably claim victory over. No, you're right. And there were a couple of other add-ons uh, in addition to the fiscal side of this. There are work requirements uh, for food stamps and welfare that to some extent have expanded. It used to be to get uh, you know food stamps and, and, and welfare, uh, you had to be working 20 hours a week up to the age of 50. That's now been increased to age 54. I still think that's kind of low. Uh, but this bill also creates exemptions Uh, for these work requirements. That includes the homeless, veterans, uh, and 18 to 24-year-olds that were in foster care when they were 18. And, you know, my point is that, that these work requirements 
are an opportunity to really help people. I mean, work gives people a sense of accomplishment, a sense of, you know, creating goals. It creates skill opportunities and it moves them away from dependency, uh, which I think is really depressing and, and demoralizing to people. Okay, but, um, but charitable so, frame on this, Peter. While you're yeah. right that it would be nice to have some work requirements in there for these 18, 24-year-olds, I think they did at least remove the language that uh, EBT or welfare fraud counts as work that would then qualify for more EBT benefits, which I think was a Democrat <laughs> proposal. So, you know, I think that you know, yeah. it, has, it wasn't the worst case scenario. Right, exactly. And look, here's the thing. You can't make the perfect the enemy of the good. Again, this is better than I thought it was going to be, uh, but I'm still very disappointed. And the bottom line is, yeah, you are looking at um, you know clawing back uh, tens of billions of dollars in COVID money. You're talking about cuts to the IRS. But again, let's remember the context. We're in an era where our budget is in trillions, uh, not billions. Um, and I think that uh, you know, creates areas of concern. Another victory, of course, is that the permitting process for some energy projects uh, is now going to be simplified. Again, the fact that this has to be added to a debt ceiling bill just shows you how crazy things are in Washington. You know, but but Eric, uh, you know, you talked about defense spending. The fact that defense spending was not included here in terms of any caps on spending and I have to tell you, I mean, this is kind of a, a, a frustrating point for me as well. I'm, you know, one of the most hawkish people out there saying we've got to have strong defense. We've got to protect ourselves. We've got to look out for our interests. But, you know, honestly, how can we have an honest debate about spending and cutting spending if we're going to exclude the military? Um, it just seems to me a non-starter. And this fantasy land that some people that are on the conservative side have, that we're going to cut everything else, but there's going to be no cut to defense, that bill is never going to pass in a million years. And as you pointed out before, there's a lot of spending on the military side that is waste and, frankly, fraud. So let me ask you about that, actually, because you're right. And for people that don't know, for people that only know your last decade worth of culture and news breaking works, um, one of the first books you did was with Reagan's defense secretary, Casper Weinberger, if I'm not wrong. Uh, so, so he was a mentor of yours. So you have worked with a former defense secretary. What do you think he would say? And what do you think people under the I mean, you could make the argument Ronald Reagan invented inflated defense spending as a way of winning the Cold War. What do you think those people would say about where we are today? Is it not just the same thing that they started? Well, I think it's a measure of what you have as a military establishment. When Reagan came into office, of course, it came after the lean years of Jimmy Carter. Uh, and look at spending as a level of gross domestic product was very, very low by historic standards. And he raised it, and we had a Soviet military threat. I know we have a rising threat from China. I know there are issues of concern with Russia and Iran, etc. cetera. Uh, but, you know, there was a chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff a few years ago uh, that was asked, what is the number one national security threat to the United States? He didn't mention China. He didn't mention Russia. He didn't mention global warming. He mentioned <laughs> massive debt. Um, and, and so we have to acknowledge and accept the fact that you, you, in order to finance a military, you have to be in a fiscal shape to be able to do so. So I think given the context and given that, you know, the Trump years were very good to the military, and I'm thankful for that, uh, but the notion that it has to continue to increase uh, in size and scope the national uh, defense budget is just unsustainable. So I think we have to be honest about these things. The big problem is, Eric, when it comes to spending in Washington, most people will say, 
we want cuts, but they only want other stuff cut that affect other people. They don't want the things that affect them. And that's not a realistic way to go forward because that means nothing's going to get cut. You know, it's funny. Uh, I think that's, that's a great answer. And I think it's a great perspective. Um, psychologists will tell you sometimes people, if they're in a traumatic or dangerous situation or just a, a negative situation, they'll, they'll develop something called an inner vow. It's like, okay, well, whatever happens, like I will be this way and being this way and driving my identity <laughs> from this thing is a way of escaping this situation. Uh, you know, if you ever go to counseling, people will talk about that. And it's almost like the U.S. military made the inner vow. We're going to spend and we're going to keep spending all the time. And even if the, and what happens in, in real life is your life circumstances change. And so that inner vow is actually no longer necessary. And at times actually becomes detrimental to your situation. Um, and that's exactly what's happened with defense spending today. The United States now spends at over $870 billion, I believe, each year on defense spending, according to one analysis from April of earlier this year. More than the next 10 countries combined, which includes China. China's about 30% of the next 10, Russia, then India, then a few more. But the point is, we are dramatically outpacing the closest threats. And they may say that that's exactly where we want to be. You don't want it to be even. You want to project strength and its safety from that strength. But to your point, if we every time we don't cut the budget, and if every time we pass a massive spending bill, we do it because we're rationalizing that we need to, the defense contracts and the defense contractors need to continue to be paid, then there is no solution moving forward to our national debt, which, as you noted, is actually a national security problem. Yeah, I mean, when you look at these defense numbers comparing the United States to China and others, you always have to be a little bit cautious. You know, in the United States, we pay our soldiers and we pay them reasonably well, especially by world standards. In China, they don't. So, you know, about 70% of our uh, military budget is paying personnel. But to your larger point, you're right. I mean, look, let's face it. Right now, we're approaching the point where payments on our national debt are equal to the size of our defense budget. If we keep doing this, cuts are going to come, whether we want them or not. So we might as well prepare for them and handle them in, in, you know, in a proper way. Um, and there's a lot of pork in military spending as well, just as there is on the domestic side. I mean, the problem is our congressmen, they derive enormous benefits from getting spending for their district or for their area. They don't really get much political benefit if they go back to their district and say, guess what? We cut this budget by 10%. So there's very, very little incentive um, for our elected officials to do anything responsible here. No, you're right. So at the end of the day, though, then it becomes an, an us problem, right? Like we're the ones that aren't yeah. properly rewarding the politicians who make the decisions. And to your point about the cuts will eventually come. I'm laughing because every time we have uh, conversations, even at the national level, about what has to cut if we don't pass the spending resolutions or, you know, eventually if we don't pass this, these taxes and we don't spend this money, we're going to see some cuts. Um, I'm always reminded of, you know, I used to work in the local media and we'd cover the local county and they would talk. The, the big thing they would always threaten to take off the table if we didn't pass the tax rate increase was mosquito control. And in the summertime in North Florida where we live, <laughs> mosquitoes can be bad. And they, they offer this service where they will come and spray your yard twice a year for free. And they say, listen, if we don't pass this tax rate, we're going to have to cut mosquito control. So recently we were sitting outside and we, it was quite buggy. I was like, hey, that's okay. We can just call the county and get the mosquito control to come out. Well, it turns out that's actually a service they cut. So to your point, eventually the cuts do come. <laughs> They're like, we told you. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, we, we, we've all seen that, you know, when, when the local government's going through cuts, they cut, uh, they threaten to cut the fire department, the police, mosquito control, etc. This is the game that's played. But the root cause of this problem is, frankly, the voters. Uh, voters say they care about the debt, they care about spending. They really don't, uh, because they don't elect people that, that deal with it in a responsible way. And the problem is, is that, you know, these problems are kind of long, looming problems that accumulate. They snowball. So you look at the problem of the national debt, it's like Social Security. Social Security is supposed to be insolvent by 2033. Is anybody in Washington 10 years in advance doing anything about it? Hell no. Uh, and the reason is most of the members of Congress probably won't be in Congress by then. So, you know, what's the point of bearing the political cost of having to make difficult choices on how to make Social Security solvent? So it's like this long moving train wreck, Eric. They see it's coming. The bridge is out. The train's going to fall off the bridge. But you know what? I'm going to get off on the stop before it actually happens. So I'm not going to say anything about it. Well, and to your point, like the deal that was recently struck that does raise the debt limit, which allows for the continuing spending problem that we have in this country uh, to happen for the next couple of years. Notice that it continues until January 1st of 2025. What does that do? <laughs> it puts it puts the onus on the next president. It makes it not a campaign issue for the 2024 presidential election. And it also makes it something that the lame duck session of Congress will have to deal with. So you're absolutely right. These members of Congress are, you could say, while there are elements here that sort of have the patina or aroma of fiscal responsibility, in fact, it is, I think, unfortunately, them continuing to kick the can down the road and make it somebody else's problem. So yeah, I mean, look, we know in Washington... Yeah, well, exactly. And, and you know, we know that it would, when it comes to deals, there's got to be compromise on both sides. But I got to tell you, I think uh, Joe Biden got a big political favor here. He's not going to have to deal with this thorny issue uh, of spending. There are opportunities. There's lots of wiggle room. Uh, and this is not going to be an issue until January of 2025, when he hopes he's still going to be uh, in the White House preparing for a new term. Um, and so the Republicans, you know, came in in April. They had a very aggressive growth plan agenda, uh, and it was essentially jettisoned. They got a little bit of it. They got the permitting. They got some expansion of work requirements on welfare. Everything else they pretty much gave away. Um, and this, I think, goes to the larger question, Eric, of, I mean, what do we do about this? I mean, it's, it's <laughs> think about the things in our lives that we complain about all the time. Uh, and we never do anything about. That's kind of what happens when it comes to, you know, excessive spending in Washington, D.C. And I think unless we start making some real changes, some real reforms, uh, we're just going to see the same thing continue to happen. And we're going to reach a point where we are going to have hyperinflation or or we're not going to be able to finance our debt uh, because it's going to continue to accumulate. Again, right now, it is approaching where just paying the interest on the loans that we have taken out is almost the size of the Pentagon budget. Uh, and that is the, the you know, financing of the debt is just going to continue to increase. So we got to think about real, real reforms. And the challenge, of course, is those reforms have to be passed by Congress who wants to avoid any responsibility on this stuff. And as we've discussed before, 
the the more that the debt goes up, if it leads to an era of inflation, the more inflation we sort of endure, then that actually causes more money, costs us more money, because the Social Security payout is indexed to inflation. And so then it becomes this self-perpetuating problem that only from, you know, if you think about it in math terms, it's not a linear, it's an exponential growth curve. It gets higher and everything gets more expensive. And then eventually, as you said, uh, you know, the money does run out. What do they say? The problem with socialism is eventually you run out of other people's money. And I think that that's actually exactly what's happening in this case. But you're right. So, but I, I, let me ask you just this one thing. If we're saying that it's a voter problem, right? It, if, if at the end of the day, the underlying problem is the American voters kind of don't care about fiscal responsibility. Maybe they don't understand the consequences of it. Um, and maybe it will take something like the American voters saying, oh, actually, that Social Security program we're planning on, it's gone. Or there are very real limits to it. It's going to be capped because like, at the end of the day, it's about choices. So you have to, the voters have to make tough choices because I feel like in 2012, when Barack Obama was running for re-election, that was one of Mitt Romney's big talking points. They'd spent all this money, yeah. right? They saved General Motors. They did the American Health Care Act. They did Obamacare. They, they did all these things. That's one of the reasons why Obama was accused of being a socialist. And so here comes Mitt Romney saying, oh, it's a debt problem. It's a debt problem. But Barack Obama got re-elected and re-elected like, relatively easily. So does taking the debt and the spending problem off the table politically against Joe Biden for his reelection, is that that big of a loss? Because I feel like Americans don't actually care about that. Yeah, I mean, that's the problem. Uh, they should care about it, but it's in the abstract for them and it's in the distance. Um, and look, if you look even where conservatives are today, you know, Donald Trump himself has basically said, uh, in effect, deficits don't really matter. Uh, debt doesn't really matter. Um, and if you look at the short-term experience, that kind of works. Uh, and this was the argument, you know, the great economist John Maynard Keynes said uh, that basically, you know, deficits are not really a problem because you're borrowing money from your own people and you're paying them. Uh, and he said it's a long-term problem. But then he said later that in the long term, we're all dead. Um, and that's really the problem. I think most people feel like let's not make any changes to anything. Things are fine. My checks are clearing. We haven't collapsed yet. Uh, and this problem is just going to kind of accumulate. And so what you need is you need leadership in Washington. You need people to step forward uh, to bite the bullet. And I think one of the ways to do that, Eric, is to force members of Congress to address these issues even if voters don't grasp the magnitude of the problem, by the time voters grasp that problem, it's going to be almost too late. I mean, we're going to have to take draconian measures, draconian measures to do so. So, you know, a couple of things, that, ideas that have been floated is one is to force members of Congress to be fiduciaries. You know, this is a, a requirement. If you have an investment advisor, you always want to ask them if they're fiduciaries because that means they actually have a legal obligation to look out for your best interests. And if they don't do so, uh, they face serious problems. The other idea is that, you know, Congress should be required every year to file a so-called 10K form. This is what all corporations in America have to give to the SEC. Uh, and in your 10K form, you have to, you know, project what the earnings of the company are going to be, what the expenses are going to be. The executives have to declare any conflicts of interests that might apply. Imagine You're if Congress had to do that. So, so members of Congress would file a 10K on behalf of the U.S. economy and say, look, here's how much we think they're going to make. Here's what our spending obligations are. And oh, by the way, here's each for each member of Congress. Here's how we might be conflicted because we're invested in these sectors, so we're less inclined to do anything that would negatively impact them because it costs us money, something like that? 
Yeah, yeah, it's it's, it's radical transparency um, required by Congress. And yes, in other words, they have to put out budget numbers. And if those budget numbers are falsified or fudged, that happens all the time, uh, then there are actual consequences for that. And so this is a way of basically saying to Washington, D.C., the same rules and requirements that you've opposed on American businesses to be honest and transparent with their shareholders, guess what? You need to do with the American taxpayers. They're effectively the shareholders of the country. You know, the problem, of course, is these reforms would have to be passed by Congress. Congress is not interested in these requirements. It's one of the inherent problems you have with a lot of these reforms. But we need to start talking about ways to force members of Congress to be responsible. If we stay in the continuing debate of cut everything else, just don't cut my stuff, this problem is going to continue to snowball, and it's going to reach a point where we are spending the majority of our budget every year on just paying debt, uh, which is a terrible place for us to be and bodes really, really poorly for our children and grandchildren. I'd also just point out that not only do, does Congress have an incentive structure problem that way, but you know it's been a decade since we did this TV documentary, which aired on Fox News, but it was about Boomtown, and it was about how wealthy Washington, D.C. had become over the last 10 years. Washington, D.C. only is more wealthy today. It used to be the case that seven out of the 10 wealthiest counties in the country were the counties in and around the Washington, D.C. area. I believe it's now down to six. But the point remains that these same places that make the decisions about spending money to the detriment of America's long-term fiscal health are the places where the money that they're spending ends up. And the members of Congress happen to live in around the Washington, D.C. area for at least half of the year. So that's another aspect to consider when it comes to the incentive problem. Uh, they're spending money, but it ends up in and around their area. It ends up in the, the area of the schools where they're sending their kids, right? I mean, so uh, it is a real challenge, but I do think it, it starts, as you noted, with voters holding the people that we elect accountable to make actually good decisions. But then they have to be honest with us. And I think, once again, transparency is an integral part of the solution. Yeah, yeah, no, I, th- I think you're exactly right. And again, I do applaud uh, something good that came out of this debt ceiling bill is uh, they wrote the bill. They actually posted it for the public and for members of Congress to read. I mean, what a what a shocking concept. Uh, but under Nancy Pelosi, they would, you know, 1500 page bills, members wouldn't even be able to see it before they voted on it. So there's some grounds for optimism here. But that that's what I wanted to ask you is, is looking at this uh, agreement, you know, how would you rate it on a scale from one to 10, 10 being the perfect masterstroke to help us get out of this mess, one, a nothing burger, where would you put this in terms of doing something positive in this area. Yeah, you know how it's like you rate people based on the context of the geographic area in which they live? You know, you might say, oh, <laughs> she's, she's, a, she's a New York 5, but there's a San Francisco 9, you know, something like that. So <laughs> I would say this bill is a real-world 3, but it's a DC 7. So I think it's, um, for, for what we can come to expect from Washington, D.C., I think the fact that we actually have some things that, that the House Republicans have flagged, say these are problems, right? Uh, the growth in EBT spending with no work requirements, the growth in the IRS, and we're just giving them all kinds of money, allowing them to hire agents. The fact that we're allowing Congress to do certain things um, from an energy standpoint with no accountability. So there are wins here. Uh, so that that's why I say it's a seven. But and the fact that we have a budget that we're actually going to have a discussion about things. Um, I mean, it seems like a weird deal. But Thomas Massey, who's a member of Congress, that we're trying to get on the podcast here shortly. He supported it. So it did curry, I think, some support from guys that typically are pretty good on 
budgetary issues. So that's why I'm a little bit more optimistic than I might otherwise be. Yeah, no, I think that's a good assessment. I think a, a, a DC seven is 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 probably uh, probably a good call. And I think the point that Massey and others would make is that you know it's again about context. The debt ceiling debate is not the best way uh, to address these issues. So we've got this budgetary process coming forward. We've got a Republican Congress. The budget initiates in the House. This is an opportunity for them to prove their mettle and to prove their stuff. So, well, thank you, Eric. I appreciate that. I learned a lot about uh, rating a D.C. versus San Francisco. Uh, I also um, know that the way and manner in which you would spend money on my credit card is certainly better than it would be in Washington, D.C. So uh, thank you for your insights. And we thank you in the audience for joining us as always. Uh, You can find this podcast at thedrilldown.com. You can also find it where other great podcasts are located. Thanks again for joining us until next time.